I have enjoyed doing this class very much. It's been extremely meaningful for me, and it has been, you know, if you didn't think so, it has been, there has been reciprocity. I have learned many things in this class and, and, and had feedback from, from this class that has influenced me and had me, uh, uh, caused me to, to, to think and rethink uh, a number of issues. So uh, it has been much appreciated. Now I am asking to take a time out because I, I would like to write a little more. <clears throat> and I am working on a project uh, that I have been working on for some time that has the working title, God's Surprise, How the Bible Answers Our Most Important Question. Now, you might, some of you might think that I am in some ways responding to another book, which in some ways I am, a book by Bart Ehrman, uh, who is a professor of, of, uh, of New Testament <coughs> at, the UN, uh, at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. He wrote a book a couple of years ago called God's Problem, how the Bible fails to answer our most important question, why we suffer. So my work, uh, that my project, and I hope I, I will be able to finish it, and I hope I will be able to get it published by a non-Adventist publisher. That is definitely my, my goal. But uh, my, my project is, uh, is the opposite. I mean, God's surprise, <coughs> not God's problem, because God, God has not does not have a problem that God has not solved. And, and there is a, the, the surprise element there is, is something I hope one can project. So I'd like to, to do that a little bit more, uh, taking with me some of the things I have, uh, 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 some of the ideas we have uh, explored in this class. We met a few of us on Thursday night in the hospital cafeteria, exploring ways to keep a group like this Con, uh, continuing, and and uh, the concept for a continued uh, continued project in this group would would then be the cosmic conflict. The topic, the framework for the group would continue to be cosmic conflict theology, which is really the the best thing Adventism has to offer. You know, I, that is my 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 the deep conviction on my part that Adventists today might you know some of my my friends with whom I disagree within Adventism uh, have you know, other things they really feel strongly about. Well, I feel strongly about the cosmic conflict and cosmic conflict theology. And I would argue that that, that is really what Adventism should try to develop and share with the world in a better way. In many ways, I think we only pay lip service to cosmic conflict theology. It is seriously underdeveloped with respect to so many things in our, in our thinking, and it has in some ways been, been stalled, the project has been stalled and, 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 and hijacked by other uh, uh, traditional dogmatic co commitments that are not serving cosmic conflict theology well. So that's my my, my uh, bias, and I think our group, those of us who met on Thursday night, we, we uh, see eye to eye on that, so we agreed to continue exploring things here, but then not with me as the, as the facilitator. So if any of you who are not on, my, on our emailing list, if you wish to be on, the, on, the, on our e mailing list, 
please write your name here afterwards and then we'll keep you posted. The next couple of Sabbaths, uh, Brad and Dorothy Cole will be leading out here. And then we have also, I think, a fairly, a fairly uh, uh, hopeful commitment from Gerald Whitehouse, who will explore some issues uh, uh, of cosmic conflict theology uh, with relation to Islam. And his, his wealth of experience and, and uh, expertise in that field. And then uh, I have also uh, uh, Melissa Broughton uh, might uh, help us revisit uh, uh, John Milton, Cosmic Conflict Theology. And I have asked John Webster at, at La Sierra, who is a very, very uh, uh, strong uh, systematic theologian, uh, that, that he could come and, and do some things and I would then specify for him to help uh, explore or help do an overview or a review of, of the, or, or, or let's put it that way, the fate of cosmic conflict theology in the theological tradition. It was there at some point. What happened to it? You know, what other agendas was it that eclipsed it? Those things have not been developed. We have never really really done that, you know, again I'm saying in Adventism there is, a, there is a commitment to cosmic conflict theology, but it is mostly lip service. It isn't really, it hasn't really, you know, developed into a, a full-scale uh, serious project. And, and maybe this group, uh, maybe we in this group, I should say, could continue to be a laboratory. In, within a university community, a laboratory for, for uh, developing, exploring aspects of cosmic conflict theology in the 21st century. So that's what we kind of agreed on, and there are some of you uh, that I see in the uh, in the room here that we would like to talk. Uh, we, we'll we'll you know take contact with you and and see what how we might be able to to uh, facilitate that and, and and keep that goal going. So again, then the 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 what this group then will be up to in the in the foreseeable future will be on the topic of cosmic conflict. That we will just define it as that and then see see how that could come uh, could uh, could uh, uh, work out. And then I hope that I could come back maybe and share if I get my. <coughs> Oh my God! Surprise project <coughs> into shape. I I will uh, share with uh, share at that, about that at some point. Okay, we're now on uh, the uh, still on the Sabbath uh, in the Gospel of John, and uh, and I uh, I talked to uh, Danielle Danielle Ucinich last night, and she's predicted that I would not be able to sort of close the loopholes on this topic and, and you might be right, <laughs> you know, you, you certainly, can, you know, you almost kept me awake with that <laughs> thought. But let's read this verse from John chapter, chapter 2 verse 4 in John. The occasion here is in the wedding, the wedding in Cana in Galilee, to which Jesus comes as a person who is not expected to be at the center of the proceedings. He's not, he's not the main, uh, what should I say, the main fair. Somebody, he is not the one getting married, uh, to put it that way. He is at the periphery. He's one of the guests. He is probably a guest fairly low on the guest list, as it, as it were. Uh, you don't, uh, anyway, let's, uh, let's uh, read this text, please. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what concern is that to you and to me? 
my hour has not yet come. Well, you know, we know the story very well. They ran out of wine. And Jesus' mother comes to Jesus and, and tells him that they have no wine, which is not, you know, there is a, <laughs> you could preach a sermon on that, couldn't you? <laughs> they have no wine. Uh, you know, the human condition in, in, in some ways uh, in, uh, expressed like that. And then Jesus answers, what concern is that to you and to me? Does it, does it, sound, does it sound like he uh, couldn't care less or, or that he cares? <laughs> couldn't care less. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like that, doesn't it? Uh, and then he says, my hour has not yet come. And what does, that, what does he mean by that? What does he signal by, by saying that? My hour has not yet come. Well, let's just, uh, uh, let's just do a little more of the story and then return to that phrase, my hour has not yet come. Well, what will he do? You know, the, it sounds like he is saying no. It so, sounds like, you know, let's not get entangled in, in, in this problem. But if his words signaled no, something must have conveyed a yes from him because what does his mother say? You know, do what he tells you. Do exactly what he tells you. So she, either by tone of voice or by body language otherwise, he has sort of given a green light to go ahead and there will be, you know, something. Do whatever he tells you. So she, has, she really has confidence in him. Uh, and uh, uh, now, so Jesus um, turns water into wi uh, wine. How many gallons? When you're done. When, they, when there is... How many gallons when it was finished? Well, you don't do wine by gallons, do you? But here we do it by gallons. Here we do it in, in measurements or vats or whatever they are called that, that are quite unusual. How many gallons in each of those six things, yes? So we're approaching between 150 to 200 gallons, you know. That is what is done. 150 to 200 gallons, and we're talking gallons. We're not talking liters. I'd love to do it in liters. That's uh, multiplied by four, you know. So you really, you really, you know, you can fill up your swimming pool, <laughs> you know, practically. So now, why did he do that? You know, what is it that he signals? If this is the overture, what is it that he signals here? And how does the statement, my hour has not yet come, how does that statement relate to what Jesus actually does at this wedding? You know, is, is the, my hour has not yet come, is it meant as a contrast, as a sort of counterpoint to what he will do at the wedding? Or is what he is doing at a wedding sig a signal of what he will continue to do? and that he will actually do more of the same, as it were. Is it contrast or continuity? My hour has not yet come. Now listen to this statement here from Dostoevsky in this most wonderful book, The Brothers Karamazov. Now, I've mentioned him before, and we, we use Dostoevsky in my class, God and Human Suffering, here that I teach. But we are mostly in that class listening to Ivan Karamazov. And Ivan Karamazov is quite an angry person because he thinks that God has let the world down. He thinks especially that, that the suffering of children is, at, is entirely unbearable. He does not say that there is no God, 
but he says there is a God, but I cannot relate to that God. And now I took my name tag away, but I have it here, so let me get it out. So Ivan Karamazov turns the problem of theology completely on its head. The concern for most people is how can I get a ticket to heaven? How can I have assurance of salvation? How can I be sure that I am in? But Ivan Karamazov says that even if I'm in, I return my ticket. I respectfully return my ticket, he says, because he is so offended by the God who very well may exist, but he isn't you know, doing enough to alleviate or prevent suffering. So that's Ivan Karamazov. <clears throat> but Dostoevsky thought that the most important chapter in his book was a chapter called Cana of Galilee. Well, it is called that. There it is here. In this, uh, here is the chapter. It's chapter in part three, chapter four, Cana of Galilee. Dostoevsky was born in 1821. He died in 1881. His dates overlap exactly with James White, just to put him in our context. James White was born in 1821. He died in 1881. They were not, they did not get to be old. They died when they were 60. That's you know, relatively short. But Dostoevsky, he was sentenced to death in 1849, and was then the sentence was commuted, and he was sent off to Siberia instead to serve a, a sentence of hard labor in Siberia. And on his way to Siberia, a woman gave him a New Testament. She handed him a New Testament. Her name is known to us. We know exactly, we know who she was. The story is known. The correspondence that, that took place between Dostoevsky and this woman also is preserved. And the, the book in the New Testament that Dostoevsky read, that was his only reading while in captivity. And the book that he read the most was what? The Gospel of John. His New Testament is also, of, of only two books in his library, his New Testament is, has been preserved. And there is a person in Norway, to my friend from Norway here, Ger Frivo, uh, there is a person in Norway who has written a doctoral dissertation on, on Dostoevsky, the books in Dostoevsky's uh, uh, library. And he, um, anyway, it's underlined, it's underlined. So he, he has a great command of the Gospel of John Dostoevsky. And listen to what he says here in uh, the chapter Cana of Galilee. This is not, the, the setting for this statement here is, this is not Ivan Karamazov talking, it is Alyosha Karamazov, the more religious of the brothers. And Alyosha is planning to commit to a religious vocation. He's planning to be a monk. And, and now the occasion for this statement is that his mentor, the priest, Zosima, he has died. So this is a statement that is being said by Alyosha, remembering his mentor. Do you get the picture? His mentor is lying there in a room and candles are burning and somebody is reading scripture on an evening. And Alyosha enters the room where the dead body of his mentor is lying. You have that? You're, you're feeling the atmosphere here? Uh, and then Alyosha remembers what his mentor told him about the story of the wedding in Cana. And what did he tell him? Not grief, but men's joy 
Christ visited when he worked his first miracle, he helped men's joy. He helped men's joy. He who loves men loves their joy. The dead man used to repeat it all the time. It was one of his main thoughts. So that's in the Gospel of John. That is an interpretation of the overture of the first sign of Jesus in the Gospel of John. Is it a good interpretation? I think it is an excellent interpretation. If that is what it took to get you know, Dostoevsky under the skin of the message in the Gospel of John, those, we should thank God for those five years or ten years he spent in Siberia. First five years in hard labor and then five terrible years in the army. But so this is what he, this is an interpretation of the first sign of Jesus in the Gospel of John. And I think we could, we could sign off on that as a very good, solid uh, competition, uh, uh, interpretation. He came to enhance human joy, not grief only. You know, not grief only. It is on the, in the dimension of plenitude and not in the dimension of lack that Jesus makes his entry, where he puts his foot down the first time you see it. It is in the dimension of plenitude, not lack. Do you see that? You know, because it isn't grief, but men's joy Christ visited when he worked his first miracle. He helped men's joy. Now, you and I are not used to thinking this, and we are not great readers of Dostoevsky, but here is something to think about, at least as we continue our, our project. And the question is, now, he used to repeat it all the time. It was one of his main thoughts. Now, if that is a good interpretation of, of you know, if that is what Zosima had, and, 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 and he has taken it from the Gospel of John, is that one of God's main, thought, uh, God's main thoughts too? Is Jesus also that kind of person? who uh, is committed to a, 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 such a paradigm, such a ministry, such a goal, that he wants to help man's joy. Let's keep that in mind. Okay, back to the question of my hour. There is a point in the story of John that is designated as the hour of Jesus, as my hour. True or false? True or false? This is easy. Get, just get started on a good note here. That is true. That is true. Other points in the story must not be taken to, to be the, deci the decisive hour. So he's ki kind of keeping you posted on what is and what is not the decisive hour. My question again, though, was, is the deci decisive hour, when it comes, how does it relate to that first event, the sort of entry, you know, where Jesus you know, signed on as something in, in, in the world, in the wedding of Cana. Because uh, I have changed my own mind about this, so I need to make sure that I, I, I alert you to the possibility. Maybe you are as misguided as I have been. <laughs> Jesus knows not only that his hour will come, but also what it is, what is and what is not that hour. There is a knowledge, an awareness on the part of Jesus of that hour 
that that is uh, uh, conspicuous in the Gospel of John and the kind of omniscience that Jesus has here from the very beginning is, is important. Jesus will proceed, number four, Jesus will proceed toward his hour according to a script that is of his own making. That is a very important thing, and I just, uh, it would have been interesting to, to say more, uh, to give a sort of uh, uh, reference point, a comparison. Let me just mention a very, very briefly. There is another book. There is another book that where the end is signaled from the beginning. There is such a thing as my hour here, and that means the hour is the ending of the story, isn't it? The climax of the story, the, the end of the journey. And in, the book in a book written by Franz Kafka, The Trial, I, I was, I'm, I am writing about this now, and I'm thinking, I, I wrote an extensive thing about, about Franz Kafka's The Trial, and then I lost it. <laughs> I, I hadn't saved it. At the beginning of The Trial, Joseph K., the main person in that book, is put under arrest. It is a very strange book, extremely strange in, in, in many ways that we need not explore. But he asks the people who arrest him, he, asks, he kind of seeks their input on what he should wear. And the people who have come to arrest him, they say, it doesn't matter what you wear as long as it is a black coat. <laughs> and he answers, he, he, he understands the symbolism of that, so he says, there, this isn't the capital charge yet. He knows that, in, you know, so what does it mean? It must be a black, black coat. It isn't the capital charge yet. It means that there is a awareness at the beginning of the book where the, book will, where the story will end. The black coat signals what? You're guilty and we're going to sentence you and you will be executed, and that's exactly what happens. You go through this long book, at the end of the book, he is sentenced, he's executed. But the book is extremely weird, but it is similar. <laughs> it, it's a very, it's, it's the book to read. If you want to read a book about unaccountable arbitrary authority, read Franz Kafka, The Trial. That is the, that should be the Bible for anyone who wants to practice unaccountable authority. So anyway, to get that into it. The, com the, co the point of comparison here is that there is in the Gospel of John an awareness of the ending from the very beginning, just like there is in Kafka's book, The Trial. It must be a black coat. Here it is, the hour of Jesus. But, but unlike Kafka, see in Kafka, he will proceed toward his hour according to somebody else's script. That is such a crucial thing. And in Kafka's book, everybody else knows what the script is. Everybody knows what that script is except the person who is condemned, except, except Joseph K., except the main person. While in the story and the Gospel of John, everybody, nobody else knows the script except Jesus. You know, he knows the script, nobody else knows it. In Kafka, everybody else knows the script, the main person doesn't know it. You see the point? See, there are some interesting points of comparison here. Yeah, so, but this is very important. He is in command of the script. The hour refers to the purpose of Jesus' life and ministry, and this is then a 
sort of a, a, a claim that we need to see if it can be substantiated. The hour of Jesus will be fraught with terror, 1227. But it is actually a time when he will come forth the winner. It is, in some ways, you could say that is the hour of Jesus something that is accented negatively, or is it something that is accented positively? That is the, the issue here. So let's just keep those questions in mind and then read a few verses here. Uh, let's read John 7, verse 30. Then they tried to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him because his hour had not yet come. And read this one too. He spoke these words while he was teaching in the treasury of the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So doesn't the, uh, don't these verses suggest that you know who 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 is in control of of that hour when it comes who decides it jesus isn't it you know that that they couldn't do it they wanted to do it but they couldn't do it because you know it wasn't for them to 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 manage the script like that are you talking about predestination <laughs> what do you hear what do you hear here let's see if there is a, a, a is this uh, uh, predestination or is it uh, I believe it means that he has not yet chosen to manifest himself as the Messiah so he's holding something back uh, and it is in his power to do that so I, I don't think you need a full-fledged uh, doctrine of predestination to make this work to make Jesus stay in control of the script uh, that 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 there is a kind there is a reality of influence here, but it does not need to take a, 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 a full predestinarian type of, of, of shape. I, I would argue that it's actually evidence of not predestination or predeterminism because if, if it were predestination, everything would flow smoothly to the final end. But what you're actually seeing is that his hour has not yet come, and so whatever has to happen to prevent him from being seized early. So it's like there are forces there that would like to get rid of him earlier than his hour. So I, I think what that is, expresses is that there is freedom of action going on among the forces that are opposing him. Uh, yeah, so <clears throat> someone, uh, a German philo uh, theologian by the name of Reda said in, 18, in 1907 that that in the Gospel of John, Jesus is like a, he is a godlike being who strides across the earth like a stranger. A godlike being that strides across the earth like a stranger. So it's a memorable quotation. Uh, he strides across the earth in some ways, but I think it is exaggerated to say that he does it like a, fr a stranger, like somebody who doesn't really touch the ground. Let's read on here. Uh, uh, John 12, 20 to 23. Now among those who went up to worship at the festival were some Greeks. They came to Philip, who was from Bethesda in Galilee, and said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Well, didn't, doesn't he make it easy? Doesn't this text make it easy for us to know what is what? The hour had not yet come. The hour had not yet come. The hour had not yet come. And now the hour has come. You know, that is very, 
very striking. So just a, 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 an outline of the Gospel of John. Where is the central chapter in the Gospel of John? I'd say chapter 12. Chapter, yes, you could say that, but you're still, uh, 17 is kind of an outlier from chapter, chapter 12, as we will see, because there is the hour has come in 17 too. Here there is a beginning here in chapter 1, where Jesus gets his first disciples in, in, in Galilee. He recruits some disciples and they all come and there is a, a core group forming. And the first disciples of Jesus, they, were, they had been what? Where had they been going to school before they enrolled at, in, in, at Jesus' school? They had been students in John the Baptist's schools. They had, been, they had been disciples of John the Baptist. So here they come and there is a group forming and then we are coming to chapter 12. And what is happening here? There is a new beginning. A new beginning. Here Jesus is in a Jewish context. And what is he doing in chapter 12? Some Greeks came and asked for him. You know, he is going what the Gospel of John must do. It universalizes. It goes broad. It goes global. You know, there is a new beginning here. But the people who are part of the new beginning are the same people who were part of the original beginning. Do you recognize the names here? So they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida. It's rehearsing, revisiting that early story in chapter 1. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip, you know, do you see that? Very much sort of personalized and, and, and I suppose well-remembered by the person who is giving us this story. And then the hour has come. So, so this is then a focal point. Chapter 12 in the Gospel of John is a focal point for the story. Just as which, which chapter is the focal central chapter in the book of Revelation, just by way of, of review. Chapter 12, it's the same thing. Now that is incidental, of course, because these chapter divisions are, are in some ways arbitrary, but it is interesting that, that these books are similar that way. Let's read 13.1. Now before the festival of the Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world and go to the Father. So there is a death, resurrection, ascension, you know, this is, it's coming to a head. Something is coming to a head here in the hour of Jesus. Let's read uh, 17, 1 again. And that's, Ralph made the point that 17 is a, is, a, is, a, is a crucial chapter. And so it is. Let's read it. After Jesus had spoken these words, he looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. So what, what is coming into, what's coming into the picture here in the hour of Jesus? What, what is, what's, the, what's the meaning? What's the focus of will, what will happen in, in Jesus' hour? An agreement between the Father and the Son. Okay. Agreement between the Father and the Son. Other thoughts? The hour. Of, so it is the plan. You're emphasizing there is a plan and there is a script. There is something called the hour of Jesus, of which Jesus is aware. What else? What, what's, what's the, what, what will happen? What will be the focal image that happens 
in the hour of Jesus. He will glorified. glorified. That's what he calls it. Yes? Harvey, uh, 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 one. But you have to define glorify. Okay, so we have to qualify that. Would you like to do it? I grew up with the idea of glorification when the tabernacle was ordained in the Sinai and the glory of the Lord was on it and the lights and all that. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the revelation of his father on Calvary, on the cross. So the focal image, what would it be then according to that logic? What would be the focal image inside inside the hour of Jesus? The hour. What will it be? The focal image there. It will be. It will be the cross. Won't it be? The, won't it be the cross? And then there are certain adjectives, certain ways of describing the meaning of that, uh, of the cross. And one of them is is glorified. Yeah. Yes. Um, um, there in thirteen verse one it says, "Now before the vessel of the Passover." Yeshua was the Passover lamb. And um, that was his hour that he was the one that was carrying the sins. And so the hour was the hour when the high priest was sacrificing the last lamb and saying, it is done. Yeshua was on the cross dying and saying, it is done. So that's, that's good too. That supports it. The, the, that what we need here is just to circumscribe the, the death of Jesus as, as, as the event that is focused. I think the glorification here is Christ's victory over, the, over Satan. In other words, this is the time when Christ is going to be victorious and defeat Satan. Let's look if we can find support for that. I think you're on to something. Let's read uh, 1227. 1227. Who? Because these, I, I, my, my, my uh, propos- proposal will be that uh, chapter 12, verses 20 through, 20 th- through 33. 12, 20 to 33 is the best explanation in the Gospel of John for what Jesus is up to about you know the best account the most complete upfront account about the uh, of the meaning of his death so let's read 12:27 now my soul is troubled and what should i say father save me from this hour no just for this reason that i have come to so there is a you know does he know what he's up to does he have awareness of the plan does he know the script does he agree with it has he yet internalized it we'll have to say yes to all of those things that's why i came is what uh, the good news bible how the good news bible tra- uh, translates 1227 that's why i came and then uh, he says here in 1231 uh, the most uh, amazing statement here let's read that now is the judgment of this world now the ruler of this world will be driven out. Okay. And do you see these, these uh, adverbs here? Now, now, now. You know, there is the hour, and then there is an even more sharply focused temporal element. It is now. You know, you see that? How the, John has, has, is highlighting that for us? So this is why he came, and this is what he will do. The judgment of this world now the ruler of this world will be driven out. 
Now, <coughs> so here is, here is a, a couple of things then. We, are, we could see this, we should see it as a cosmic conflict statement. We are at the critical moment in the cosmic conflict. We are at the critical moment of this world. Jesus' death will happen in the context of battle between two warring parties, one of which is called the ruler of this world. Would you say we are sort of on, on topic, or the text is, is supporting that kind of, 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 uh, of in, inference or, or conclusion? Jesus speaks and has been speaking in the Gospel of John as though he has a battle plan. And then the ruler of this world, Jesus predicts that the ruler of this world will be defeated in the decisive battle. You know, so now is the time. Now he is making his final move, you know, to defeat the opponent in the cosmic conflict. Isn't that what, what we're seeing here? So 1231 becomes a very important text. Let's just test this out on another story in chapter 18, verses 3 to 6. Let's look at this text. One of you, please read it. So Judas brought a detachment of soldiers together with police from the chief priests and Pharisees. And they came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And Jesus, knowing that was to happen to him, came forward and asked them, Whom are you looking for? They answered Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus replied, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with him. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they stepped back and fell to the ground. Now, don't you want to comment on that? Yes. I mean, comment on it. What, what, what is it that, that seems incongruous? What, what is it that shouldn't be that way here? Yes. I, I guess I've heard that the he is actually supplied there and that he actually just said, I am. Yes, that, yeah, that's good. That's it. That's, uh, of course, yes. But thank you for that. So that means that there is a, there is a sort of a claim, a Christological claim there, I am. There, uh, yes, what else? Thank you for that. <coughs> yes, Daniel. That just seems odd if they're coming to arrest him, that they should basically worship him. I mean, to step back and fall to the ground usually is a symbol. Yes, but, enactment of worship. yes, that too. That too. And, and, and doesn't it seem, I mean, there is a power imbalance here, isn't there? Who has the power? They came, a detachment of soldiers came together with police. They came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. You know, who seems to have, you know, be, be, have the power, uh, you know, more power? Well, the ones who come to arrest him. But what do they do? He says, I am. And then they stepped back and fell to the ground. You know, there is a kind of... All I wish to use this text for is to show a, a, that Jesus is in some ways in command of the script. And what happens is that what he sort of... It's, he, he controls the choreography in some ways, doesn't he? So any other comments on that? You see that? Is that offending you? Does it seem, you know? So what it suggests to me, what, the, what I have been impressed by, and, and it has in some ways is changing my ideas about this story, is that, is that Jesus is not being, you know, he is certainly not being taken, you know, kicking and screaming. 
it is like Jesus is moving forward, you know, quite with quite deter, you know, with determination, quite quite uh, confident that what he is about to do and what will happen to him will in fact accomplish what he has is this, is, is intending to to achieve. So. Uh, that's it. We'll skip the other. There is more of the same here in, the, in the, these verses here. Uh, let's just look at how Jesus, uh, uh, the bottom line of this in 1811, Peter tries to, to uh, Peter is not so convinced about the merits of the script. You know, Peter wants to fight it. He thinks this is something that shouldn't happen. And then Jesus says to Peter, put your sword back into its sheath. Am I not to drink? the cup that the Father has given me. The Gospel of John has not talked about the cup of Jesus. The cup of Jesus is a synoptic term. So this is one place where the Gospel of John is probably aware of the synoptic story. You know, if it is your will, let it cup pass from me. You know, that, that Gethsemane story. And here Jesus is saying, shall I not drink the cup? You see the point. Let's read John 8:44. So why is Jesus? What is it that Jesus will do when he defeats when he defeats his opponent in the cosmic conflict? Uh, let's read 8:44 again and see uh, what what might be important to keep in mind here. You are of your father the devil and want to do the wishes of your father. The one who was a manslayer from the beginning and has not stood in the truth because there isn't truth in him. Whenever he speaks as he is won't, he speaks the lie for he is a liar and the father of it. So remember that we, we did a little bit of a, we, we did an exercise on this text before. So I would like you to, so here the lie, there, the text Jesus speaks about, he speaks about Satan. He speaks about the, the ruler of this world. This is a, 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 another way of, of uh, describing him. And then he, speak, he says that the ruler of this world, or this, the father, your father, the devil, as he says here, uh, that he speaks the lie. So we used to, we definitized it. You know, we said, we accented that it is a singular, singular uh, thing. So what was it? What is it? The lie. That Jesus, in some ways, he will defeat the cosmic opponent who has spread lies in the, in the, uh, in the world, and he has something that is even deserving of the, of the term, the lie, the mother of lies. I have written a, a thing on this called the father of lies, Satan, the mother of lies, what he actually said, and the death of Jesus. So what is the mother of lies? This is, this is the continued influence of Saddam Hussein on American English discourse, isn't it? <laughs> the mother of all battles, mother of lies. What is the content of the lie? The original. The Garden of Eden, the Garden of Eden, let's do it quickly. The Garden of Eden, the opening gambit, the serpent says what? The serpent, even before he says, you shall not die, he says, 
Has God really said that you cannot eat of any tree in the garden? Is God not a giving person? Is God a withholding person? Is God an ungenerous person? Is God arbitrary? I mean, how bad would you be if you said you cannot eat of any tree in the garden? So he makes God out to be what? Not a giving person. Not a giving person. Isn't that fair to say? Or, or, or you have other terms that you might want to throw in there. And that is the lie. When he speaks the lie. And Jesus has come to do what? To defeat the lie. Hasn't he come to defeat the lie? And now he will do it. That's why I came. Isn't that fair to say? That's in there. So... Uh, Joanne Brandt, she gives us two options for translating 1231. Now is the critical moment of this world. That's very good. That's an excellent translation for now is the judgment, because it is the judgment as a critical moment. Now is the critical moment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be expelled. That's one, uh, one uh, way to read this Greek word, ekballo to be expelled, to be thrown out. But there is another way. Yes, please. When the soldiers came to get Jesus, I think in desire of ages, says an angel crossed between them and they fell to the ground. I think that demonstrates that Jesus is showing that he could have called 10,000 angels, but that was not his and God's methodology. Yeah. He was demonstrating that not by force, which he could very well have uh, used, but by this new method of revealing God's character that he would go the full length. Yeah. But that's, that supports you know, what, what needs to be done here, because it isn't only to defeat him in the sort of making him, you know, let's say that you take him out. It isn't only that. You have, to, you have to defeat the lie. How do you defeat the lie? You know, uh, well, you could do it by, I suppose, killing the liar. Uh, but that is not how Jesus will do it. He will uh, do it some other way. He will do it by showing that, that what was said about God was really not true. It was a lie. So here is another way of, of uh, translating it, the same thing. And I think the second one is the better translation. That is what fits the context the best. Now is the critical moment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be exposed. Now the ruler of this world will be exposed. He will have his, his guise. He will be stripped of his guise. These are judicial terms. This is a law court type of proceedings. And there is a critical moment here in that, in, in that uh, judgment. And there the ruler of this world will be exposed. But we shouldn't take expelled completely out of the equation. We should just say that, that the connotation of exposed is, is, is important. Uh, compare these two texts here, uh, John 12.31 and Revelation 12.9. Now is the critical moment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be exposed. And then 12.9 in Revelation. The great dragon was thrown down. It's the same word. It is ballo without ek. Same word. Same. There is ek ballo. Here it is ballo only. But it is the same. 
the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down again below there to the earth and his angels were thrown down uh, with him. Three times here that same verb. The verbal action in John 12 and the verbal action in Revelation 12 are the same. I call this not just Satan's fall from heaven, his fall from innocence. That's the terminology we have used, I have used in the past on this. Satan falls from innocence in heaven. And then he falls at the cross. When Jesus dies on the cross, what does he do then? He falls from influence. That, I think, is terminology that could work uh, fairly well. Uh, that his influence is curtailed. He is kind of the force of what Satan, the way Satan has represented God is, is, is defeated, as it were. Yes, please. Um, did, did Satan lose his influence when Jesus died or when he came back to life? Well, let's look a little more. That's an excellent question. Let's, let's hold that question there and then see what happens as we move through the rest of our, our story here. <clears throat> so, there is an ambiguity to glory language in the Gospel of John. Uh, 12.23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Because what, what is the texture of the glory that is being revealed here? Uh, and 12.28, Father glorified your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. This is very important language in the Gospel of John. Uh, let's read 13, 31 to 32, an extremely convoluted text, by the way. Would somebody read that? 13, 31, and 32, sorry. 13, 31. But when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man has been glorified, and God has been glorified in him. If God has been glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and will glorify him at once. I think we need to read this, and I say this in very imperfect, this is a very imperfectly formulated comment. But let's say that what is glory? You know, somebody has a good name, and then he gets an even better one. Is that it? Or somebody has a bad name, and then he takes back his good name. What is the connotation in the Gospel of John? Someone has lost his good name, and he wants to win it back. His good name, his good reputation, he wants to restore his reputation. Is that what the Gospel of John is talking about? Or is it only, you know, he always had a good name, and now it's getting even better. Which one is it? The, the one that he, that he had his reputation ruined, that he had his reputation slandered. He was ma maligned, as it were. And now he is taking back his good name. The time has come for God to take back his good name. That would be, I think, much better way to represent it. But of course, there is an ambiguity to this. Because in order to go up, which is what he is doing, he's sort of going to go up. You know, the movement upward is a movement downward, isn't it? There is a, there is a strange ambiguity to this this glory language here. The background for these terms is Isaiah. Isaiah wields a huge influence on this passage in the Gospel of John. The suffering servant passages in Isaiah 
I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to idols. And he said to me, you are my servant, this is talking about Jesus, you are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified, through whom I will take back my good name, as it were. And uh, this is uh, just comparing then the glory motif here, that Jesus did in fact reveal his glory here in Cana in the beginning. So there is that uh, from the very beginning. Uh, I'm skipping this one, the lawsuit motif, it is very important too. Uh, then to, to these uh, texts, uh, similar type of ambiguity, glory language and being lifted up language is ambiguous here because it is, a, it is counterintuitive what he is saying. When I am lifted up from the earth, what does he mean by being lifted up? Yes, when I am being lifted up, he means crucifixion. But that is humiliation, isn't it? You are, if you're crucified, you are really badly humiliated. But that is not how the Gospel of John talks about it. You know, the lifting up is in some ways, you know, the humiliation is in some ways vindication. Uh, and, and here is Nicodemus speaking, uh, or Jesus speaking to Nicodemus rather. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, it's conspicuous language. Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, so this is language very important to, the, to uh, uh, the Gospel. So when Jesus is lifted up in this movement that defeats his opponent and refutes the lie, as it were, then he will draw all people to himself. And the background text here again is Isaiah. Now the suffering servant passages in Isaiah uh, that that uh, uh, sound the same same theme. Uh, Danielle was right. We are running out of time here. <laughs> uh, let me just try this though to uh, for the f last few minutes. And and some of you can uh, who need to go uh, should not be embarrassed to do that. But but let me just do give you a sort of counterpoint here and and uh, and try to to draw a conclusion. This is Tony Campolo preaching. No. See, this is very good homiletics, but it is very bad theology. It's very bad theology. This is not the theology of the Gospel of John. It is extremely good homiletics, and I have heard Tony Campolo preach that sermon in University Church. And all the saints in the university church said amen and thought it was great. Well, it isn't good theology and it would be devastating for the Sabbath to make that the theology of the Sabbath. That is what I wish to highlight here. There is, there is in the message here, as you, as you try to see the tapestry of the Gospel of John, there is in 2.4 already at the beginning of his ministry, he announces himself as the great giver, as the great provider, as the one who has come to minister to human joy. And he defeats the lie even there at the wedding in Cana because Satan had represented him as somebody who is withholding. But here is 200 gallons of wine, you know, of the best sort, you know, excess, abundance, and there is more joy. And then the mother of Jesus does not appear until the ending of the story again, but there is a 
coherence, the theme that is announced at the wedding is brought to completion at the cross. You know, they are off the same page. Can you see that? And the same. So there is then, then uh, you know, the, when Jesus is on the cross, that is where, where the full meaning of the Sabbath comes into to view here. Uh, but I, I, I'm just sorry, I'm running out of time here. So I will just read through my last uh, uh, three points here. Uh, and, and then m maybe we will reconvene at some point here before the summer and I will try to, to fill in what is lacking. In the Gospel of John, the cross is not a melody play played in minor key and the resurrection in, in major. Do you understand that? you understand that that is the message of the Gospel of John? The cross is not a melody played in the minor key and the resurrection in major. That is not the theology. The theology of the Sabbath is a theology of the cross. It is Friday, but no but. No but. There is not the a sense of defeat when Jesus dies on the cross. There is the sense of victory. And Ellen G. White does a wonderful job of, the, of, of capturing that in, in the book Desire of Ages in the chapter called It is Finished. It is a wonderful, wonderful piece of, of, of keen theological work on the meaning of the death of Jesus in the Gospel of John. In the Gospel of John, the Sabbath is a signifier of joy and abundance. Only at the cross has the meaning of the Sabbath come home to itself in the context of joy and abundance. You see that? It is not just, he didn't just come to minister to man's grief. And the Sabbath is a signifier that he didn't just come to minister to man's grief. He came to help man's joy. That is amazing. So there are other small details here, but we'll have to uh, rest our case at this uh, uh, here now, and, and then we will uh, reconvene here uh, in the coming Sabbaths talking about cosmic conflict theology, which is still seriously underdeveloped in the Adventist uh, theology and beyond, beyond the, the, the boundaries of Adventism, there is much more work on this to be done. Thank you.